I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Welcome back, Refiners. I'm glad to see you're enjoying the Severed Origins series. By the way, this is Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. I'm your host, Alan S. The writer and actor strikes continue, so we're still hanging out here on the Severed floor, checking into Origins, those things Dan Erickson has mentioned that influenced him during the creation of Severance. When it comes to influential movies, Dan regularly lists titles like Brazil and The Matrix. Usually at the end of these lists, he will pause, then say something like, Oh, and there's Dark City. I really liked that film. Dark City seems to get reverential treatment, and it's not just from Dan. Others also sing the praises of Dark City. It is hailed as this very groundbreaking sci-fi movie. Roger Ebert loved it. He even did special commentary on the Dark City DVD. As I kept running across these references, I was starting to feel a little embarrassed. I'd never heard of Dark City. It came out in 1998 and was directed by Alex Proyas. He's the same guy who directed The Crow. My original plan for this round of Origins episodes was to do a deep dive into The Matrix. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, and it was mentioned multiple times by Dan Erickson as an influence. I started reading background and reviews about The Matrix to prepare. In many Matrix reviews, I also found references to Dark City. Some reviewers even implied Dark City did it first and did it better in the Wikipedia article about The Matrix, there's a mention of Dark City as being an influence on the Wachowskis. Okay, universe, I got the hint. I decided I'd better check out Dark City. I was even thinking maybe I should be doing these next Origins episodes about Dark City instead of The Matrix. Then I watched Dark City. By the way, huge spoilers are coming for both Dark City and The Matrix. I'm sorry, refiners, but Dark City just doesn't do it for me. The baddies in Dark City are aliens. They've created a fake city as a laboratory floating in space. The aliens have designed the city to look like the United States in the 1940s. They've populated this created city with a select group of humans placed there to be studied. The aliens want to know what it is to be human and what makes humans the way they are. Each night at midnight, the humans all fall into a forced sleep. While the humans sleep, the aliens are able to switch out specifics of the city. There is a physical change happening. They can add or remove buildings, stretch rooms. They call this process tuning. It's the ability to change the physical world. We don't get any explanation as to how they've developed this control over the physical world. They just do it and we accept it. The aliens also have the ability to remove and transfer memories from one human to any other human. They move these memories around a lot. Whoever you are when you went to sleep is probably not who you'll be when you wake up. Your memories will have been changed. You remember an entirely new life each morning. The aliens are wanting to discover if you are who you are because of what you know and remember in your life, or are you the way you are regardless of what you've done? 
Everyone accepts this memory swapping because no one has any way of knowing things were different yesterday. The entire dark city was created as a laboratory. It's a place for the aliens to conduct these experiments. The aliens want to know if humans are inherently either good or bad, or if it is the sum total of their experiences that causes behavior. The name Dark City comes from the fact the aliens don't like sunlight. Since they prefer the dark, they've angled the city so it never faces the sun. Dark City is perpetually under black skies. It's always night, but no one questions it. The Neo character in Dark City is a man who does not sleep. We don't get an explanation as to why he isn't affected by the aliens' midnight curfew. He just is. They may have made a mistake one night when transferring his memories. That might be the explanation. Because he can stay up to see what's happening, he is aware of the alien experiments going on right under everyone's noses. He somehow also has the power to tune his surroundings just like the aliens. He's not nearly as powerful, but he does seem to be developing the ability. Again, we don't know why or how he acquired this power. In The Matrix, Mr. Anderson has abilities which are never fully explained, but his seem to stem from his proficiency as a hacker and a computer guy. His control over The Matrix seems to come from his understanding of computers and coding. There's at least a bit of a foundation for why Neo would be singled out as the one. In Dark City, we never know exactly why Mr. Murdoch is able to stay awake when all other humans immediately fall asleep at midnight. For me, Dark City is just too much magic. You have to take the tuning process on faith. If you can tune, you can make a door appear in a wall, a real wall. The Dark City tuning process affects physical objects. In The Matrix, the Neo character has the power to tune his surroundings, but only when he is within The Matrix. This means he's not changing matter. The Matrix is a simulation. Neo's only adjusting computer-generated perceptions. It might look real, but your experiences in The Matrix are nothing more than a bundle of electrical impulses being used to describe a real thing to your brain. To quote the kid in the Oracle's waiting room, there is no spoon. Be ready, refiners. I'm going to use this phrase a lot. It sums up the entire movie for me. When you're inside The Matrix, what the mind perceives is an object shaped like a spoon. Besides just looking like a spoon, it's also shiny, has weight, and feels solid. These are just a grouping of perceptions being fed to your brain as electrical impulses, all of which together describe a spoon. Always remember, as real as it might feel when you are plugged in, there is no spoon. In Dark City, not only is the spoon real, our hero could also bend the spoon by tuning if he wanted to. My problem is, how? I want at least some logic applied to the processes being described. Sure, the underlying story explaining the Matrix is a huge leap, but the narrative structure makes more sense to me logically than anything happening in Dark City. With Dark City, it's difficult to know what is created versus what's real and what we're actually experiencing or just perceiving at any given time. In the Matrix, we always know as the viewer when we're either on the inside or outside of the construct. Once we realize there's an outside, being able to control the construct from within becomes Neo's objective. Dark City is by no means a bad movie. It's well-made. It's well-acted. Roger Ebert practically drooled over it. Dan Erickson was influenced by it. I just don't buy into the central plot device. 
Oh, and even though I like Kiefer Sutherland, I'm not a fan of the character he's created as the Doctor. The halting speech pattern really got to me after a while. A character with that much difficulty speaking shouldn't have so many lines. If you're curious, if I've piqued your interest, do give it a look. You can stream Dark City for free from the Internet Archive, or you can buy or rent Dark City from Amazon Video. I truly was ready to do a breakdown of Dark City until I watched it. Now I've decided to stay with my original plan and break down The Matrix. It's one of the influences listed by Dan Erickson as he was creating Severance. It's also my favorite sci-fi movie and just an amazing movie in general. So if you're ready, Refiners, let's keep the origin series going by opening the file called The Matrix. As always, huge spoilers for The Matrix. We're going to rip into every detail. If you have never seen this incredible movie, you can stream it right now from Max. It is also available for rent or purchase from the rest of the usual suspects. The Matrix was released in 1999. It's the brainchild of two siblings from Chicago who at the time went by the names Andy and Larry Wachowski. I've always had a bit of an affinity for the Wachowskis. They are each just a few months younger than my brother and I. Both graduated high school in the same years as my brother and I. Plus, they are from Illinois. Well, kind of. They're from Chicago. And they like to write and create cool stuff. My brother and I never collaborated on any production projects. Otherwise, our Midwestern upbringing very much mirrored the Wachowski brothers. Until that is along about 2010. This is where the life path of the Stair brothers diverges from that of the Wachowskis. There had been rumors starting in the early 2000s, but nothing was official until around this time when Larry revealed she was transgender. Larry had been transitioning and would undergo reassignment surgery to become Lana Wachowski. A few years later, in March of 2016, Andy would announce that he too was transgender and would also undergo reassignment surgery. Andy would become known as Lily. Starting in the 20-teens, the duo of Lily and Lana would be referred to as the Wachowski Sisters. The Wachowskis didn't let their gender frustration get in the way of their creativity. If anything, it may have fueled it. Lily has said their early work should be viewed through a lens of transness. Themes of shifting identity, body dysmorphia, transformation, and self-image are all very apparent in The Matrix. In an attempt to avoid pronoun mistakes or etiquette errors, I'm going to refer to The Matrix directing team as the Wachowskis throughout this podcast. If I refer to either individually, I will reference them by their current gender names. An easy memory trick, Larry transitioned to Lana. Both names start with L-A. Andy transitioned to Lily. The Matrix has been referred to as the Wachowskis' first novel or first album. It's the one they poured themselves into for years and the one thing they really wanted to get made. Lana has said it contains every good idea we ever had. The Wachowskis started out in comic books for Marvel in the early 1990s. Had they stayed with Marvel, it is very possible The Matrix would now only exist as a graphic novel. It would be a great one, but thankfully, the Wachowskis quickly made the transition to movies as a way to tell their stories. Their first writing credit was for the 1995 film Assassins, directed by Richard Donner. Warner Brothers bought their script and included two more pictures in the Wachowskis' contract. This first experience with writing for film was an eye-opener. Donner brought in Brian Helglund to completely rewrite the original script. It was so changed, the Wachowskis tried unsuccessfully to get their names taken off the project as writers. 
This first foray into Hollywood creativity told the Wachowskis the only way they could make this work would be as directors. Never again would they let someone else co-opt their vision or change their words. They would have a chance to direct in 1996 on the feature Bound, which they also wrote. Although not a box office hit, Bound was well-received critically. It proved the Wachowskis could tell a story with style. Bound indicated to the studio they were developing their directorial craft. Even though it didn't sell a lot of tickets, Bound was well-received by both critics and audiences. Bound has a 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb. Checking the tomato meter, audience and critic scores are both in the 80s on Rotten Tomatoes. Bound starred Jennifer Tilly, Gina Gershon, and Hoboken, New Jersey native Joe Pantoliano. Joey Pants would, of course, show up in The Matrix as evil crew member Cypher. Curious about Bound? I know I am. I haven't seen it yet, but I do want to check it out. Bound is available to stream on Paramount+. Plus. You can rent it on Amazon or Apple. With Bound, the Wachowskis had proven they could direct. But could they direct something as big and ambitious as The Matrix? Bound had a $6 million budget. Estimates for financing The Matrix ran to $65 million. Some of the techniques proposed for shooting The Matrix still had to be invented. Could these very green directors be trusted with a movie that cost tenfold their previous effort and would most likely be a logistical nightmare? For several of the studio executives involved, it wasn't a question of could they deliver it under budget, but could they deliver it at all? Most studio execs didn't even understand the script. One Warner Brothers executive during an early meeting said, We know we bought something cool. Now, could you explain exactly what it is we bought? Oh, they could explain it all right and in great detail. In hindsight, pretty much everything the Wachowskis did in the 1990s seems to have been directed towards getting the Matrix to the screen. One of the most amazing things they did was create an immense, detailed 600-panel storyboard with virtually every shot in the movie represented. Remember, their roots are in comic books. They think in these panels when it comes to storytelling. The Wachowskis were not illustrators, so they hired two of the best. Jeff Darrow had impressed them with his illustrations while collaborating with Frank Miller on a comic miniseries called Hard Boiled. Those who know both Darrow and the Wachowskis say they are on the same creative wavelength most of the time. Canadian comic book illustrator and storyboard artist Steve Scrucci was also brought in to help with the creation of the immense storyboard. Scrucci had worked with the Wachowskis briefly while they were at Marvel on the Clive Barker comic series Ecto Kid. Scrucci would only work on the storyboards for the movie. Darrow would go on to be listed as a conceptual designer in the art department. One of his most visible contributions to the outside world was his design of the sewer-cruising sentinels that attacked the Nebuchadnezzar. There is a visual brilliance to the entire movie, and much of it stems from this huge and incredibly well-made storyboard. Warner executives later said the Wachowski's storyboards were more dramatic and on point than most. Many of the scenes, when we first cut to them, look like a comic book panel. Perspectives are forced. Items are placed in the very close foreground. Some items frame other items in the scene. It creates these stylish and amazing shots, which all have very definite comic book roots. The Matrix also has some very deep philosophical roots. 
Keanu Reeves was directed by the Wachowskis to read three different books before production began. Actually, he was told to read these books before he even opened the script. The first, Out of Control, is a treatise on the new biology of machines, social systems, and the economic world. He also had to read Dylan Evans' ideas on evolutionary psychology. The most important book assigned to Reeves was a 1981 volume from French philosopher Jean Baudrillard called Simulacra and Simulation. Full disclosure, I didn't read the book, but I have read two different articles explaining his themes. I kind of get it, but I still don't think I completely get it. Very basically, Baudrillard claims current society has replaced reality with signs and symbols. A simulacra is a copy of something that either had no original or the original does not exist anymore. It's a copy of a copy, but we accept it as being authentic. Baudrillard claims we've been inundated with these simulacra, which have now completely supplanted reality. He says modern human experience has become a simulation of reality, which is a very apt description of the Matrix. The Matrix, as we'll discover, is a copy of the human Earth year 1999, which doesn't exist anymore, so it is most definitely a simulacra. Only the four primary leads had to read all three of these very heavy volumes. Even performers who were not required to read any of the three were at least required by the Wachowskis to be able to explain the matrix. They had to be able to clearly describe both what it is and why it exists. Another philosophical construct that is important to help understand the matrix is the idea that our perceptions of the real world are limited by our senses. If you think of your brain as you, think about how you perceive the world. Eyeballs and an optic nerve deliver visuals to you there in the brain. An incredibly complex nervous system provides information about touch and feel. Auditory nerves deliver sounds. Olfactory provides smell. Eyes, ears, nose, skin, tongue, each of those body parts houses a sensing system designed to report what's happening in the real world. It's important to realize each sensing system is its own thing separate from the brain. The connection from the eyeball to the brain or the ear to the brain comes through neural pathways. The sensing system creates a tiny electrical signal with information that can be decoded by the brain. It then sends the signal along the neural pathway. What the brain gets is nothing more than an electrical impulse. Because of how it's delivered and where it came from, the brain knows how to process the impulse. You never really contact the outside world. Your nose does, your ears do, your fingers can feel it, but your brain is getting all of its sensory information secondhand. None of us can directly interact with the outside world, but we all have faith that exists primarily because of shared experiences and perceptions. We all ooh and ah at fireworks at the same time. If I were to ask you for a red crayon, you'd know what to hand me. This indicates there must be some real independent thing out there creating sensory input that causes us to all react in similar ways. We're pretty sure there's a real world, but we are at the mercy of our senses when it comes to revealing it to us. Now, suppose there were a way to interrupt the neural pathways that carry all of our sensory information. If someone could deliver an alternate sense of feel to the brain while shutting off the actual nerve sensors in your skin, the new alternate signal would be interpreted by the brain as the sense of feel. It's the same with all five senses. 
if the signal coming through the neural pathway says something is there, your brain is going to believe it's there. Ask any amputee about phantom pains or feelings. Even though a limb is no longer there, damage to the neural pathways can make the brain think it's still there, and maybe even that it hurts or itches. The AI builders of the Matrix exploited this truth about our sensory perceptions. They've overridden our neural pathways. Our physical bodies have been shut down. Instead of getting information from the body's five built-in senses, our brains are now plugged into a computer program which simulates every aspect of sensory existence. Nothing is real, but those who are connected to the Matrix believe they are living on Earth in 1999. Everything those who live in the Matrix experience is a simulacra being fed to them by a computer through their neural pathways. This might seem like a simple concept until you start to consider the ramifications. Every human being is plugged into this thing. It's a lot to process. Think about it. Get used to it. We'll talk more about philosophies of the real world as we get more into the movie. So what do you say? You ready to get into the movie? I have a lot more about the background of what's going on, but I'd rather start watching. I'll try to sprinkle some tidbits in as we go through the show. We open on the Warner Brothers Pictures logo, and it's green. Why? Well, because everything in the Matrix is green. Every time we enter the construct in the movie, it has a green tint. When we are in the real world, those scenes have a cool blue tint. Just like with Severance, colors play an important part in understanding this world. Warner Brothers is firmly inside the Matrix, so is Village Roadshow Pictures. Look closely at their 3D extruded logo. The symbols of the Matrix code are running down all of the surfaces. Have you ever been to a theme party where the hosts covered every detail? This is how I feel about a detail as minute as changing the studio logos. Attention to detail indicates fine craftsmanship. It tells me the Wachowskis are controlling every moment of this experience. The first thing we see at Fade Up is the green code or green digital rain that has become synonymous with The Matrix. This code screen opens all of The Matrix movies, much like the Star Wars text crawl. In order to make it a bit creepy and a bit alien, a special typeface was created by Simon Whiteley. He included mirror images of half-width Japanese katana characters, Western Latin letters, and Arabic numerals. There are also pictographs visible in later versions of the code screen. The green tint matches the green displays of early monochrome computer monitors. Visual effects house Animal Logic was responsible for creating this opening sequence. They also created all of the uses of the reigning code throughout the movie, even when Neo starts to be able to see it in The Matrix. The characters resolve into the words, The Matrix, which then fades. We're left with a single green cursor in the upper left corner of the screen. An old-style phone ringing down a noisy, old-sounding line can be heard. Yeah. Is everything in place? We're hearing Joe Pantoliano and Carrie Ann Moss talking on the phone. She's playing the character Trinity. He is playing Cypher. As the call progresses, we're watching a phone trace on the screen. The program is figuring out each number in a 10-digit U.S. formatted phone number as the two keep talking. Trinity isn't even supposed to be on right now. I know, but I felt like taking a shift. Cypher says she likes to watch him, doesn't she? Don't be ridiculous. Cypher says they're gonna kill him. Whoa, hold on, who? Trinity disagrees. She says Morpheus believes he is the one. We're only 80 seconds into this thing, but we're being deluged with exposition. Who are these two talking? 
Who's Morpheus? Who is this guy Trinity likes to watch, Cypher thinks they're going to kill, and Morpheus thinks is the one? What exactly is the one anyway? You can see why movie execs were stymied by this script. Those guys aren't known for getting nuance even when it's simple. When the ideas are complex and you put this many unanswered questions in front of them, their brains shut down. They also have this rather arrogant attitude. If they can't get it, audiences probably won't get it either. It's no surprise Lawrence Fishburne was shocked to see something this smart that actually made it to the screen. The phone number is coming together, but the trace must be audible, at least to Trinity. Did you hear that? Hear what? She wants to know if this line is clean. The male voice tells her, sure, it's clean. He's rather cavalier, totally ignoring her concerns. If something goes wrong, she's the one in real danger. As the numbers continue to fall into place, Trinity gets a bit nervous. I better go. Final number to resolve is a zero. Whoever was doing the trace now has a lock. We fly right into the center of the zero as it morphs into a green digital tunnel. There's a bright light at the end of the tunnel, which turns out to be a policeman's flashlight. Note the heavy green tint on the scene as we pan to the left. Anytime we're inside the Matrix, the scenes will have this green tint. Whenever we're in the real world, the blue tint with no green. The only place we see green in the real world is on the monitors showing the Matrix code. Throughout post-production, the cinematographers were constantly asking the question, just how green do we make it? The officer with the light signals behind him. More cops, guns drawn, advance on a door marked Room 303. Refiners, if you've made it this far through the podcast, then you just know that's not a random number on the door. Of course not. Threes have a sacred energy in numerology and history. The Holy Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost of Christian teaching is one of the most well-known threes. Threes are scattered throughout this movie. We are about to open the door on a woman whose hacker name is Trinity. Three agents are going to show up to try to stop her. The power trio in the whole movie consists of Morpheus, Neo, and Trinity. Morpheus is constantly worried about the mind, body, and soul of his crew. Watch for the threes. The cops blast through the door, guns drawn, all shouting. A woman in a shiny black leather jacket with short, dark hair is quietly sitting at a desk along the far wall. She has her back to the door. An old hardline phone is sitting next to her. This is the hardline she was talking on with Cypher. The trace allowed them to find her here. The cop's flashlights play over Trinity's back. She doesn't move a muscle. We cut to a reverse. His slow tilt up reveals Trinity's face with four or five flashlights arrayed behind her. The cops are shouting at her to put up her hand. Do it! Do it now! She puts him up, fingers splayed wide. Trinity is being played by actress Carrie Ann Moss. To hear Carrie tell it, she had absolutely zero career before The Matrix. I'd say she wasn't doing so bad. Carrie'd done several single-episode guest-starring roles since the early 90s, but she'd also had 29 episodes as a regular on the series Models, Inc. She appeared on 17 episodes of a 91-93 series called Dark Justice. Weirdly, she was also a regular on a 1993 TV series called simply Matrix. It was named after the lead character, Stephen Matrix, who is a dead hitman. Yeah, I know what I said. You can go check that one out on your own. As of this recording, Carrie is still working, and quite a bit. She appeared in 11 episodes of a TV series called Wisting from 2019 to 2022, and she was just in a movie called Chocolate Lizards, released in 2023. 
Although I can't picture anyone else doing it, Carrie Ann was not the first choice of the producers for this role. Janet Jackson had been approached initially. Scheduling conflicts made it impossible. Sandra Bullock, who had been discussed as a possible Neo with a rewrite, was also offered Trinity but turned it down. Rosie Perez, Salma Hayek, and Jada Pinkett-Smith were auditioned but not cast. Moss said her audition included about three hours of wire work and stunts. Unlike the other primary cast members, she had a pretty good idea about how physical this Matrix assignment was going to be. Cut to a crane shot outside the building. We're tracking down a sign that identifies this as the Heart of the City Hotel. It's a decrepit and deserted place in what appears to be a bad part of town. A quick note about these hard lines used to connect to the Matrix. As we continue through the movie, you'll notice the various members of Morpheus's team can communicate with the real world via cell phones when they're in the Matrix, but they can only move into and out of the Matrix on these hard lines, physical connections. According to Lily Wachowski, transferring team members into the Matrix via Hardline is an artifact of the time when the movie was made. We've discussed this effect during both Paycheck and Brazil. Filmmakers trying to be futuristic can sometimes accidentally reflect the era when they are making the film in their future tech choices. In the mid-1990s, cell phones could barely carry data. You were lucky to connect and maintain voice calls during this era. The 3G cellular network, the first that could handle enough data to display basic video, wouldn't be launched until 2001. Even Wi-Fi was still in its infancy. It had just been introduced in 1997. If you can imagine, getting on a network via Wi-Fi was kind of a novelty in the late 90s. Wi-Fi was primarily utilized by people who were just starting to seriously work on laptop computers. At the time, Wi-Fi data rates were slow and there was always a good chance you were going to lose the connection. You wouldn't want to transfer something as big and important as a person's consciousness through either Wi-Fi or cellular data in the mid-1990s. Nah, you'd want to plug into a hard line for a reliable phone call or an Ethernet port with maximum data rates. Since hard lines were the only reliable connection in the mid-90s, the Wachowskis made hard lines the only way to transfer a person into and out of the Matrix. These hard lines were coded in by some of the earliest rebels who began to infiltrate the Matrix. If you want to load up on the history of the Matrix and the battle of the humans versus the AI, there is a series of nine animated prequels which go into detail called the Animatrix. These stories are canon overseen by the Wachowskis. Anytime I reference Matrix history, it's coming from the Animatrix. Hard lines were also intentionally placed in dilapidated, low-traffic, low-use areas of the Matrix. Phones in abandoned hotels, payphones in bad parts of town. These are perfect places to put hard lines. The crane down the sign dissolves to an arriving black sedan. The men in black are here. The agents. Son of... Oh, shit. Three guys wearing sunglasses at night, dressed in identical dark suits with black ties, step out of the sedan. Name any conspiracy theory. These guys were probably behind it. They are led by the incredible Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith. Weaving is a hometown boy when it comes to this shoot. The entire movie was shot in Sydney, Australia. Weaving was born in 1960 in Nigeria to British parents, but he took up permanent residence in Sydney at the age of 16. 
Although he has an extensive list of film credits and 98 total performer credits on his IMDb profile, Weaving says he is most at home on the stage. He regularly performs in Australian theater productions, usually with the Sydney Theatre Company. Weaving was also not the first choice for this role. You'll notice that's a common theme throughout the movie. Jean Reno was originally offered the role, but refused to move to Sydney for the planned five-month shoot and four months of martial arts training. Weaving has crafted a sci-fi villain for the ages with his portrayal of Agent Smith. He said the curiously flat tone of his accent was inspired by both 1950s newsreaders and the voices of the Wachowskis themselves. Agent Smith approaches the ranking cop on the scene. He reminds him they were given specific orders. This is a no-nonsense cop right out of a 40s movie. Hey, I'm just doing my job. You give me that jurist, my diction crap. Cram it up your ass. Okay, so maybe he's a little saltier than a cop from the 40s. This been-there-done-that lieutenant is being played by Australian actor Bill Young. Agent Smith is not cowed by the attitude. The orders were for your protection. The cop laughs. He says he thinks they can handle... One little girl. So all of this is about the one woman who we saw on the phone. Smith and the other two agents continue past the lieutenant towards the heart of the city hotel. The cop calls after them. He says he sent two units. They're bringing her down now. Smith pauses. We can see the ever-present coil of a communications device coming up out from his collar, leading to his right ear. He turns back. No, Lieutenant, your men are already dead. Maybe not just yet. We cut back to the room where Trinity was making her call. She's standing over by the wall, hands behind her head. Check this shot. In the foreground, we see the officer's utility belt. He pulls his handcuffs off the belt. Trinity, in her shiny black outfit, balances the shot to the right of the frame. Trinity's outfit looks like heavy vinyl or PVC. Actually, it's a lot lighter and more movable than that. The costumers used fabrics that were easy for the performers to move around in, but still red as shiny to the camera. These outfits also had to be a lot more breathable than PVC. Most of the main character wardrobe was designed to accommodate wire harnesses and a lot of intense movement. This cop actually thinks he's going to handcuff her. Wow, take a look at this reverse shot. It's a comic book frame if there ever was one. I saw the panel from the storyboard for this shot. Except for the woman in the drawing not looking like Carrie Ann, they are identical. Trinity's right ear, eye, and over to her nose are visible in the right half of the frame. With her hand still on her head, we can see the cop with the cuffs advancing on her through the bend of her arm. Her features are completely passive. As he attempts to put the cuffs on her wrist, Trinity whirls. We hear a crunch. Poor guy's arm is broken. She viciously jams her open palm into his face, breaking his nose. Then we get our first look at the bullet time effect. Keanu's move on the rooftop is the one you'd see in all the entertainment news stories. But it wasn't the only use of this new technique. As Carrie Ann jumps, she poses in midair and freezes. The camera makes a move around her as she is suspended in air. This is a 3D camera move around a person who is in mid-jump. Sure, it might be nothing special in 2023, but in 1999, this move caused a gasp throughout the theater where I was watching it. Trust me, we'd never seen anything like this. Trinity unleashes a devastating kick, which throws the handcuff cop against the far wall. He doesn't just hit it, he smashes it. 
There are stunt people on this movie, but they're used very rarely. The Wachowskis wanted the faces of our stars to be visible during the fights. They didn't want to be cutting to stunt people with obscured faces. That's really Carrie Ann Moss doing the wire work and kicks of a stunt person. She's being pulled up on a wire to accentuate the jump movement. Then she's unleashing those kicks while suspended from the wire. This is some involved and advanced movement. Ms. Moss didn't just walk onto the set ready to kick major martial arts butt. Her move in this scene is the result of over four months of intense training and instruction. The four major characters, Trinity, Morpheus, Neo, and Agent Smith, all agreed to be trained in martial arts and wire work as preparation for their roles. The Wachowskis hired Yen Wo Ping to do the training. Wo Ping was well known at the time as a Hong Kong fight choreographer. He'd been instrumental in creating the careers of both Jackie Chan and Jet Li. Wo Ping said it was common for Eastern martial arts films to be cast with people who already knew how to fight. This was most definitely not the case with the cast of The Matrix. The Wachowskis told Wo Ping their cast would need both training and conditioning. Wo Ping estimated he would need two months of daily training in order to get them ready until he met the cast. After working with them for a single day, Wo Ping said he realized they didn't know anything about fighting and they were all out of shape. Additionally, Keanu was just coming off a cervical fusion surgery for a herniated disc in his neck. The condition made it very painful for him to do kicks or sometimes even turn his head. During the first eight hours of training, Hugo Weaving suffered a hip trauma, which required surgery. He also said it was one of the most intense workouts he'd ever experienced. Because of the hip injury, many of Agent Smith's most physical fight scenes had to be pushed to later in the filming cycle. Since his most punishing scenes were with Neo, it wasn't a problem. Keanu Reeves was also suffering more issues with his neck and back. He discovered at the start of primary shooting the neck fusion surgery hadn't taken. He was still suffering pain from physical movement. With all of these obstacles, Woping doubled his time frame from two months to four months of training. He said he'd need every day in order to get them ready. Trinity is making short work of the cop. She viciously kicks a chair across the room that takes out one of them. Another officer has the presence of mind to start shooting. Trinity, undeterred, runs up the wall and around the corner of the room on the wall. Carrie Ann Moss said when she first read this scene in the script, it described her doing things like jumps, kicks, then running along the wall. She was thinking, surely I'm not really going to be doing this. Little did she know what the Wachowskis had in store. Carrie Ann said she fought the wires at first, but eventually learned how to work with them. In the next few minutes, the body count is going to go up fast. Throughout the movie, a number of civilians are brutally killed due to the actions of both the agents and the rebels. We find out early on, if you die in the Matrix, you also die in the real world. In recent years, superhero movies have opted for protecting civilians. They've gone the A-team route when it comes to casualties. Huge battles in Marvel or DC movies are only perilous to characters who are there to fight. In The Matrix, unsuspecting folks like security guards and beat cops regularly die some ugly deaths. The cast and producers of The Matrix justify it this way. If you kill someone in The Matrix, you've freed them from their servitude. I'm not sure how much of a comfort that is since they didn't know they were bound in servitude. They were just living their lives in 1999. 
Trinity is unarmed, but there are plenty of guns in the room. When she comes down off the wall, she grabs one of the cops and wraps his body around hers. She grabs his gun hand and points his arm at one of the other cops in the room. She then empties the one cop's gun into the other guy. When she's done with both the body and the gun of the first cop, she unleashes a kick which goes over her shoulder and hits him in the face while he's standing behind her. He drops hard. There's a momentary pause after all of the officers are subdued. Cut to the hotel main entrance. The agents are on their way in with a line of cops following. We cut back to Trinity, still in the room with the hard line, but now she's on a cell phone. Morpheus. The line was traced, I don't know how. I know, it got the hard line. This mention of the line somehow being traced is foreshadowing. Cypher, who Trinity was talking to earlier, is a turncoat, but we don't know it yet. We will soon enough, and it's going to be really bad. The voice on the phone is very identifiable. These are the regal pipes of Lawrence Fishburne in the role of Morpheus. He is father, mentor, and sage to the members of his crew. We'll meet him properly when Neo does. For now, Morpheus needs to get Trinity out of this mess. There's no time. You're going to have to get to another exit. He's meaning a hardline exit, a connection to the outside of the Matrix. Are there any agents? Yes. God damn it. The agents are quickly making their way up. Morpheus tells Trinity she has to focus. There's a phone at Wilson Lake. You can make it. A note about the geography of the Matrix. The movie is being shot in Sydney, Australia, primarily inside a large soundstage. The few times they do go outside, specific landmarks are hidden as a way to keep the city generic. The only time we get actual identifiers for where we are comes with these different hardline locations. The Wachowskis, remember, grew up in Chicago. As a nod to their hometown, all of the intersections referenced in the movie are major Chicago intersections. Wells and Lake form two sides of the four streets that border the loop in downtown Chicago. Also, you might be wondering how Morpheus can be so all-knowing when it comes to Trinity's situation. We don't know it just yet, but he's talking to her from outside of the Matrix. Since he and his crew are constantly monitoring the Matrix, they can see everything that's going on within it. Go. The elevator opens to reveal the silhouette of an agent flanked by cops. It's Agent Brown who comes racing off the elevator. He and Trinity have a moment of recognition before she breaks into a full run down the hall. It's pretty obvious from her reaction you don't want to mess with an agent. Brown and the cops follow. Trinity goes through a door leading to the roof. She can see Agent Smith waiting in the alley below. No escape there. She'll have to go over the rooftops. Trinity comes up and over a ladder on the lip of the roof. In the background, we can see the lights of a large city. This is a translite of the skyline of Nashville, Tennessee. We aren't supposed to know it's Nashville, but many Nashville residents were able to pick out specifics like the AT&T Batman building from these scenes. The reason Nashville was chosen as the image for this scene is because it was not a well-known city skyline at the time. Thanks to the Batman building, it's a bit more known now, but it's still not a cityscape that jumps out at you like New York or Seattle or Paris would. Trinity is running at full speed along the rooftops. She's jumping from building edge to building edge. She is amazingly running on an inside set. It is immense and goes on for a long time. A camera on a track is mounted alongside the set, following Trinity on her run at full speed. All of these scenes, and almost all of the scenes in the film, 
are being shot at what was known as Fox Studios Australia at the time. It was sold in 2019 to the Walt Disney Corporation. It is now known as Disney Studios Australia. Fox Studios was opened in 1998 as a massive, all-encompassing production space. Eight enormous sound stages, production offices, heavy industrial workshops, and more than 60 independent film service providers are housed in the 32-acre complex. One of the first movies shot there was the one I mentioned at the top of the podcast, Dark City. This set, which Trinity is running across, was originally built for Dark City. The Dark City comparisons were unavoidable, I guess. Not only is The Matrix using the same studio and the same set as what appeared in Dark City, but they've also got a lot of the same visual effects people working on both movies. This is due to the nature of the Fox Studios complex. There are more than 60 independent entertainment support businesses located right there. Movie producers don't have to leave the grounds in order to hire audio editors, pyrotechnics experts, visual effects editors, even craft services. It's all right there on the lot. Some of the other recognizable titles shot here at Fox Sydney include Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge, Mission Impossible 2, Star Wars Episodes 2 and 3, and Superman Returns. Sydney was chosen as the shooting location primarily for the economic benefits. There was a side benefit to being so far away from Hollywood, which the Wachowskis didn't realize until they'd gotten into production. Being halfway around the world meant studio suits wouldn't be dropping by the set. There was no way for them to be poring over the dailies or offering notes. The Wachowskis were pretty much left to their own devices for five months, 118 days of primary shooting. Afterwards, they said avoiding studio involvement was nice, but they didn't really care. They'd have gone anywhere and shot under any conditions in order to get this movie made. The cops are having trouble with the building-to-building -building jumps. Some of them barely make it. Trinity is easily crossing the rooftops at full speed. Agent Brown is matching her speed, but not catching her. Frustrated, he takes out a handgun and fires at Trinity. <laughs> The agents each use an AE-50 Desert Eagle Mark 19 pistol. It's a 4.4-pound behemoth of a gun with a serious recoil. The average weight of a handgun is usually around 1.5 pounds. Because of its enormous weight and kick, the Desert Eagle isn't considered suitable for real combat. But agents don't have issues with things like gravity or physics. The Desert Eagle has a seven-round magazine, except for when Smith and Neo face off. The agents don't even seem to be limited by reloading. In several scenes, gun enthusiasts have noted the agents shoot well beyond their magazine capacity. Why would agents want to arm themselves with such an unwieldy gun? Because the Desert Eagle can fire 50 caliber Action Express, or AE, ammunition. It's the largest center fire cartridge of any self-loading pistol you can buy anywhere. The Desert Eagle was designed in the early 1980s by Magnum Research. At various times in its history, this gun has been built all over the world. Since 2019, it's been produced at MRI's Pillager, Minnesota facility. I did find a fun story about how the Desert Eagle wound up being cast in this movie. It's considered a Hollywood gun. It looks fearsome, but it's so heavy and hard to use it isn't really good for much. John Bowring, the lead armorer for The Matrix, said it was the Wachowskis who mentioned using the Desert Eagles. They asked him over email who would carry a 50 AE Desert Eagle. His reply? A wanker. They wrote back, 
Who were they made for? His reply, wankers. Their reply to that, the wankers in this film want Desert Eagles. Bowring wrote back, your film. Brown's 50 AE doesn't connect with Trinity, but he does take a big chunk out of a brick chimney. Trinity keeps going, focused on reaching the hard line before the agents can reach her. Then we get a little taste of what it means to be part of the Morpheus crew. When you know what Trinity knows, gravity doesn't have as much of a hold on you as with most folks. Trinity launches herself from one building to the next, all the way across a city street. We cut to a down-angle shot following her across the chasm. We're at least seven stories from the pavement, and police cars can be seen on the street below. This is a practical wirework effect. She actually made that jump on a wire from one set building to the next. But instead of clearing a street, she was flying over a wide swath of green. The street scene and the building faces were added in later as a post-production composite. Trinity lands on the far side with a gentle roll. Wopeng said he tried to maximize the strengths of each performer with the moves he assigned them. He said Carrie Ann's movements were naturally light and graceful. Her fight style and acrobatic movements were choreographed to match. As Trinity continues running, Agent Brown approaches the same street jump. Agents have no worries about things like gravity. He's not as light and graceful as Trinity, but Agent Brown is also able to launch himself completely across the street. The cops behind him are suitably impressed. That's impossible. Brown lands hard, gun drawn. Trinity is hiding behind a chimney. She sees a lighted window at the far end of the rooftop. It's in the next building. She sizes up the distance, then tears off at full speed, sprinting for her life. Agent Brown gets off another shot, but still can't connect. Trinity launches herself and flies across the space. She hits the window perfectly, smashes it, rolls onto a landing, and slides head first down a flight of stairs. She is so ready for the agent to be behind her, she pulls out twin pistols as soon as she hits the floor. Trinity is packing Beretta Cheetahs, the Model 84FS. Originally, Trinity was going to carry the Beretta 92, which is the same gun we'll see Neo using later. The decision was made to go with the 84FS because of her smaller hands. According to Bowring the Armorer, the 84FS has the same visual appeal as the 92, but it looks a lot more to scale in Carrie Ann Moss's hands. For a long moment, Trinity studies the broken window. She's laying on her back, guns drawn, body still angled up the stairs. A light is swinging in the landing from where she hit it on the way down. Nothing. No movement. No following agent. Get up, Trinity. Just get up. Get up. She pulls herself off the floor and keeps running to the hard line. Cut to a street scene. Trinity is running towards an old-style, full-length phone booth. We are out of the studio with this shot. This phone booth is actually sitting at Miller's Point in Sydney, just west of the southern entrance to Sydney Harbor Bridge. As soon as Trinity spots the hard line, an enormous city trash truck skids into position facing the booth. Agent Smith has been busy out requisitioning a sanitation vehicle. Cut to a close-up of the phone in the booth. Morpheus is calling, ready to bring Trinity home, if she can answer it. Trinity has no choice. She's going for it. The tires on the trash truck start to spin, burning rubber. 
If he gets there first, the hard line will be destroyed and worthless. The only way he doesn't win is if Trinity gets there first. But will she have time to get out? She runs full tilt into the booth and grabs the phone. The sanitation truck is bearing down hard. She puts a hand up on the glass, waiting for either the connection or the crash. The truck smashes through the booth violently. There's nothing left of it. truck backs up from the mess. It's covered with bricks, mortar, and debris. We see two heavy black shoes hit the pavement. Agent Smith gets out of the cab and walks around to survey the destruction. Brown comes up behind him. She got out. Remember in 1999, nobody had any idea what he was talking about. Got out of what? Where did she go? The third agent, Agent Jones, steps into frame from the left. He says something equally cryptic. The informant is real. He's talking about Cypher, who tipped them about Trinity. His info was good, and it almost allowed them to get her. We know now this is what he means, but it flew right by everybody the first time they saw it. The three agents are facing camera, the trash truck sitting behind them. Cypher was doing more than just dishing about Trinity. We have the name of their next target. The name is Neo. Smith says they'll need a search running. It has already begun. We then get a move that is so incredibly unique you have to ask yourself, who even thinks like this? It's awesome. The camera tracks over the debris of the phone booth. This hard line won't be getting any more use. We see the cord, the handset, then the camera zooms in on the handset. We close in quickly, going right to the mouthpiece. Do we stop there? Of course not. We're in the matrix. The camera goes through one of the holes in the mouthpiece of the phone. We get another green tunnel, like what we saw when we went through the zero during the number trace. The tunnel dumps us out into a green search bar. Pull back to reveal a computer screen. We're in the apartment of Mr. Thomas Anderson. Screen name, Neo. Don't miss the scrolling articles. Neo is searching for information about someone named Morpheus. The first headline we see on the screen says, Morpheus eludes police at Heathrow Airport. It opens with the byline London as the search intensifies for the renowned terrorist leader. Neo, of course, is being played by Keanu Charles Reeves. He was born in September of 1964 in Beirut, Lebanon. Coincidentally, I happen to be writing this bio on September 2nd, his 59th birthday. Keanu's performing career began in the early 1980s after he dropped out of high school to act. He was in a Coke commercial and a Kellogg's commercial and a few made-for-TV movies. In 1986, he scored a role which garnered him some notice in the Rob Lowe hockey movie Youngblood. He notched some critical acclaim with appearances in River's Edge and the Oscar-nominated Dangerous Liaisons. His first pop success came in 1989 as Ted Theodore Logan in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. Gentlemen, I'm here to help you with your history report. What? How? Whoa! Oh, I hate that part. Bill? What? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Unfortunately, the goofy character persona would define his real-life persona for decades. In 1994, Reeves would prove his worth as a big-budget action star in the runaway bus thriller Speed. Pop quiz, hotshot. There's a bomb on a bus. 
Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? What do you do? I'd want to know what bus it was. You think I'm going to tell you that? Yes. <laughs> Very good. Reeves has more than 100 performer credits on his IMDb profile, with six upcoming. Want a little Keanu trivia? His name is a Hawaiian word. It means cool breeze over the mountains. Amazingly, Keanu was also not the first choice for the role of Neo. Not by a long shot. Will Smith had been given the option. He turned it down so he could go make Wild Wild West. At first, it sounded like Smith turned down the role because he was skeptical the bullet time effect could actually be created. Later, he said it was because he didn't feel he was mature enough as an actor to play the role. Nicolas Cage declined due to family obligations. Warner Brothers approached Brad Pitt and Val Kilmer. Both passed. Leonardo DiCaprio did initially accept the role, but then later passed, saying he didn't want to do another effects movie so close on the heels of 1997's Titanic. Keanu wasn't even the first choice of the Wachowskis. They were wanting Johnny Depp. Warner Brothers pushed for Reeves over Depp, and since they were paying the bills, Reeves became Neo. Neo has music playing through his headphones as he's working or sleeping. Don Davis handled the original score for the movie, but there are several tunes from popular late 90s artists scattered throughout. The diegetic song that can just barely be heard through Neo's headphones in this scene is Dissolved Girl by Massive Attack. It comes from their 1998 album Mezzanine. I think it might also be a subtle comment on the previous scene. Trinity seems to have dissolved. Another headline scrolls by, International Manhunt, underway. This Morpheus character seems to be everywhere. Check the pick to the right of the Manhunt headline. It's a very candid shot, almost a silhouette of none other than Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus. Neo is sacked out on his desk. An overhead shot looking down at Neo's workstation shows us the extent of his obsession. His workspace is almost inundated with drives, monitors, and keyboards. Do check Neo's keyboard. The one in front of him is a Microsoft Natural keyboard. They'd just been introduced in 1994. The Elite Upgrade had come out in 1998. The idea behind the Natural keyboard was more comfortable hand placement. The key pack is separated into two halves. Each side was angled slightly towards your hands. With the angled keys, your hands were supposed to sit more naturally while typing. You didn't have to bend your wrist to square them up with the keyboard. I looked into one of these when they first came out. I actually tried typing with one in the showroom of a circuit city. And if you understood that sentence, hey, Boomer, the feel of the natural keyboard was just too weird for me. It's not surprising Neo would have one. They were very popular at the time. They sold as many as 100,000 a month in 1995 and over 600,000 a month at the peak of its popularity in the late 90s. There's a cut to a shot looking at Neo's monitor over the back of his sleeping head. The monitor goes to black and a single cursor appears in the upper left. Something is being typed on the screen. It's not Neo typing. He's sacked out. A closer look reveals the words, Wake up, Neo in a green DOS-looking serif font. This causes Neo to stir. 
Keanu looks disheveled and gaunt in these scenes. Many of the Thomas Anderson scenes were some of the earliest shot. This was due to Keanu's neck injury. It was decided to shoot the lowest impact scenes first to allow both Keanu and Hugo Weaving some time to heal. As Neo is regarding the screen, the line disappears and more words type on. What? This time it says, the Matrix has you. What the hell? Neo hits Control x trying to escape whatever it is that's taken over his screen. More text appears. Old White Rabbit. He taps the escape key, still nothing. White Rabbit? The screen changes again. A line pops on that says, knock, knock, Neo. Neo jumps, looking towards the door. Who is it? Choi. What he said there is Choi. His name is spelled C-H-O-I. For more than 20 years now, I've always thought this name was Troy. I was quite surprised to see the different name in the cast list. The monitor has gone black. Did he dream those messages? Had he been asleep? Oh, and what white rabbit? Neo opens the door of apartment 101. Again, dear refiner, you just know this means something, right? Neo's apartment number works on a couple of levels. First off, if Neo is truly the one, then of course his apartment number would be 101. If it were just one, that might be a little too on the nose. Also, the native machine language of a computer is in what's called binary code. Binary is a base two numbering system represented as a series of ones and zeros. Neo's apartment number is probably also representing a string of binary code. I'm sure this doesn't mean anything, but if you convert 101 from binary to decimal, it's a five. Neo opens the door a crack. Choi is not alone. At least four other people are visible in the hall. You're two hours late. I know. Choi doesn't seem like a guy who's too worried about anyone else's schedule. He squeezes the girl standing next to him. It's her fault. Neo doesn't care about excuses. He asks Choi if he has the money. Two grand. After snatching the cash out of Choi's hand, Neo closes the door and retreats back into his apartment. These are not the kinds of folks you invite in for a drink. There's a long shot here of Mr. Anderson's, um, apartment. It's more of a one-room hovel jammed with electronics. Neo steps to a shelf and picks up a book bound in green. We get a momentary look at the cover. This is a copy of the Baudrillard title the four primary cast members were tasked with reading, Simulacra and Simulation. Neo opens the book to reveal a secret compartment. This book is a simulacra. We can see Neo's book safe is jammed with a relic of the last century, physical media. Back in the days before the cloud and Wi-Fi, if you wanted to move data from one place to the other, you had to put it on physical media. Floppy disks and internet data rates couldn't keep up with the bigger and bigger files we were creating. We had mini disks and zip drives and burnable CD-ROMs back then, all designed to allow you to carry around huge data files. Neo searches through what looks to be a stack of mini-discs. These were a somewhat exotic and short-lived media format based on full-size CDs. Minis would even play in full-size CD-ROM drives. Several discs are in the fake book. Whatever work Neo's doing for Choi, he seems to be doing the same kind of thing for other clients. Neo hands the item out to Choi. Hallelujah. You're my savior, man. Not sure what he's purchased or what could be on the disc that would save him, but he is very pleased. Neo might just be doing data searches. 
At the time, finding anything on the internet was difficult and time-consuming. Google had just been introduced in 1998 as the internet's comprehensive search engine. Before Google, finding anything on the internet required a lot of work and expertise. Neo's more worried about his work being traced. He warns Troy if he ever gets caught using that... Yeah, I know. This never happened. You don't exist. Neil looks confused, out of it. Troy even picks up on it. Something wrong, man? You look a little whiter than usual. Neo haltingly starts to say something about his computer, but doesn't go into it. His computer writing messages to him might sound a little too crazy. He pauses a minute. You ever have that feeling where you're not sure if you're awake or still dreaming? Mm, all the time. Although Neo and Choi's dream state may not be coming from the same place. It's called mescaline. Just in case you aren't up on your rave drugs, mescaline is a hallucinogenic psychedelic along the lines of LSD or psilocybin. It's a naturally occurring substance that can be found in the peyote cactus. It's nothing new. The peyote cactus has been used medicinally by indigenous North Americans for more than 5,000 years. It's the only way to fly. Choi thinks Neo needs a break. Time to unplug and unwind. Get a handle on that work-life balance. Hey, what do you think, Dejour? Should we take him with us? Dejour eyes Neo up and down. Definitely. Yes, the character name of the woman with the huge metal choker Spock bangs and severe bun is Dejour. I think this might be a writer's joke. Dejour in French means of the day, as in this is not going to be a long-term relationship for Choi. I wonder if he calls all his girlfriends du jour. Du jour is being played by Australian actress Ada Nicodemou. Ada was born in Sydney in 1977, but her heritage is Greek Cypriot. Her family fled to Australia in 1974 during the Turkish Cypriot War. If you look at Ada's IMDb profile, it can be a bit deceiving. Ada only has nine entries in the last 30 years, but one of those is as a series regular on an Australian drama called Home and Away. Home and Away is a nighttime soap and an Aussie addiction. It runs every weeknight, Monday through Thursday, for half an hour. Since 2000, Ada Nicodemou has appeared in 2,170 episodes of Home and Away. But that number is constantly changing because it appears Ada is still on the show. Choi is being played by Sydney native Mark Aiden Gray. Mark started his career in the 1985 Australian film Fortress. After this appearance in The Matrix, where Mark was able to show off his American accent... It's called mescaline. It's the only way to fly. He decided to move to New York to continue his acting career. Since coming to the U.S., Mark has racked up 52 performer appearances, most as a guest star on series like NCIS, American Horror Story, Bones, and Rizzolian Isles. Mark is still working and currently has four projects listed as upcoming on IMDb. Neo says he can't head out with Choi and his crew. I can't. I have uh, work tomorrow. Jor wraps herself a bit more tightly around Choi. Come on. It'll be fun. Promise. Sure, for people who don't have work tomorrow, going out all night is fun. Neo is about to decline again when he notices something on Dujour's shoulder. It wasn't visible until she turned. It's a very definite white rabbit tattoo. White ink in a tattoo seems a bit unusual, but if you're going to do a white rabbit, it's very important. 
Turns out white is actually a color of ink used in tattooing. White is used more rarely than darker colors, and it's a bit harder to work with. If you've selected a tattoo that includes white ink, make sure you've got an experienced tattoo artist doing the work. Although he's still not sure if it was a dream, Neo decides to listen to the message on his computer monitor. Yeah. Sure. I'll go. Hard cut to black and the thrashing grunge chords of a rave. The Rob Zombie tune Dragula takes us into the scene. Dragula is about as subtle and laid back as most of Rob's stuff. Dragula was the lead single from his 1998 album, Hellbilly Deluxe. Neo is a rave wallflower. He's not sure why he's here, but the monitor said to follow the white rabbit, so here he is. Trinity, the woman we met in the opening scene, approaches through the crowd. Her rave wardrobe is a bustier with bare shoulders. Hello, Neo. He's surprised to hear her use that name. She says she knows a lot about him. Who are you? My name is Trinity. The name seems to ring a bell. Neo then says... The Trinity? That cracked the IRSD base. This line has created some confusion on trivia sites. I've seen more than one place claiming Trinity's screen name is The Trinity. No, it's just Trinity. Neo said the here as a way to separate her out from what must be the dozens of other trinities running around on the internet. He's confirming she is the trinity, the one to have hacked the IRS D-Base. He seems far more impressed by the IRS hack than she is. That was a long time ago. Neo seems bowled over by something. Trinity asks him what? I just thought, um... We're a guy. Trinity's not bothered by it, she says. Most guys do. Neo then realizes something. That was you on my computer. How did you do that? Trinity is cryptic. She says right now, all she can say is Neo is in danger. I brought you here to warn you. Trinity tells Neo he's being watched. She moves close to him, her lips right up by his ear. I know why you're here, Neo. I know what you've been doing. I know why you hardly sleep. Why you live alone and why night after night you sit at your computer. She knows he's looking for Morpheus. She was doing the same thing, but she realizes now it wasn't really Morpheus she was seeking. I was looking for an answer. It's the question that drives us near. It's the question that brought you here. She asks him if he knows the question. What is the matrix? Ding, ding, ding. Mr. Anderson goes to the lightning round. Trinity tells him the answer is out there. It's looking for him, and it will find him if he wants it to. Trinity practically kisses him as she pulls her mouth away from his ear. Neo looks after her. A noise fades in from the background. It's the bleep of an alarm clock. Got to a close-up of a Panasonic clock radio. The time is 9.18. Not normally a wake-up time for people who have to be at work in the morning. We're in Neo's apartment for less than 10 seconds before cutting to the exterior of an enormous and imposing building. The sign on the front says Meta Cortex. Meta as in self-referential and cortex for the part of the brain that controls consciousness. Neo is standing in front of a man at a desk. It's his boss here at Meta Cortex, Mr. Reinhardt. 
Reinhardt is not happy with Mr. Anderson's performance. He thinks it's a deep-seated dislike on Neo's part. You have a problem with authority, Mr. Anderson. This does not seem to be the first time Reinhardt's had this conversation with Mr. Anderson. Two window washers are scraping noisy squeegees just outside. Reinhardt says something inadvertently prophetic. You believe that you are special. Somehow the rules do not apply to you. Oh, just wait till you see him dodge bullets. The rules don't apply to Mr. A, at least in here. Obviously, you are mistaken. Nope, I'd say he's on the right track. He just doesn't know it yet. We're told Metacortex is one of the top software companies in the world. Why? Well, it's not because of their easy-to-pronounce name. Because every single employee understands that they are part of a whole. Reinhardt has no idea how true a statement this is. Everyone in this world is a part of the whole, whether they want to be or not. Close up on the squeegees. The squeaking and scraping is becoming more annoying. Reinhardt says if the employee has a problem, the company has a problem. Time has come to make a choice, Mr. Anderson. Not a blue pill, red pill choice, but this one is important to Reinhardt. Neo either has to be at his desk on time from now on, or find another job. Do I make myself clear? Yes, Mr. Reinhardt, perfectly clear. Reinhardt is being played by David Aston. David is from Auckland, New Zealand. He's another stage actor who's branched out into television and the movies. David has 25 IMDb performer credits dating back to the mid-1980s. Cut to cubicle land at Metacortex. A dolly left reveals Mr. Anderson all snuggled into his cubicle with an enormous cathode ray monitor. The 1990s, when the depth of a computer monitor was almost always more than its width or height. Thomas Anderson? FedEx is here. Yeah, that's me. Neo's getting a package. Oh, and a huge shout-out to my Southpaw brothers and sisters out there. You might notice as he's signing, Mr. Reeves is one of the 8% of us brilliant and creative folks who are left-handed. Have a nice day. Neo looks around a bit as he opens the cardboard envelope. Getting FedEx at your cubicle may not be the most common occurrence around the office. Neo then slides one of the coolest phones ever made out of the FedEx pack and into his hand. This is the Nokia 8110. It had been introduced in 1996. It was known at that time as the Banana Phone. From this moment on, it would be known as the Matrix Phone. The 8110 was similar to the other stick phones of the day, with one very cool exception. There's a slide-out flap over the keypad on a springed lever. When you punch a button on the side of the phone, the keypad cover shoots down to reveal the keypad and put the mouthpiece in a more natural position for the user. Not since Captain Kirk's flip-open communicator have geeks gone so nuts for a voice-only communication device. That one little springed hinge made this phone incredibly cool. You felt like you were snapping open a switchblade. Although they did amp the sound up a bit here in the movie. After seeing the movie, I lusted after this phone until I discovered it retailed for more than $1,000, and that's $1,999. Even with the high price, its inclusion here caused a surprising run on these three-year-old phones. The merchandisers were ready when it came time for phones in the Matrix Reloaded movie. For the second chapter of the Matrix saga, Warner Brothers worked with Samsung to create a special phone just for the production. It was released for retail sale at the same time as the movie. 
A fun side note about this original Matrix phone, when the fourth Matrix movie was released in 2018, Nokia did a re-release of the original 8110, only now with 4G. It still had the tiny monochrome screen and no smartphone capabilities. By 2018, the only cool thing about it was the fact it had been Neo's phone in the first movie. Oh, and you know how the original was over $1,000 in 1996? The re-release with 4G was selling for $67 in 2018. As soon as the phone is in Neo's hand, it rings. There's a great reverse shot here looking up past the phone at Neo's surprise. He snaps it open. Oh yeah, I love that sound. Hello? Hello, Neo. Do you know who this is? Sure, it's Lawrence Fishburne. Oh no, hold on, that's not what he means. Morpheus. Yes, I've been looking for you, Neo. They've been searching for each other, and still it's taken all of this time to get them together. See how bad things were before Google? Morpheus says he's run out of time. They're coming for you, Neo, and I don't know what they're going to do. To have just answered a phone out of a FedEx pack, Mr. Anderson is surprisingly composed. Who's coming for me? Morpheus tells him to stand up and see for himself. Right now? Yes. Now. He tells Neo to do it slowly. Uh Uh-oh. We know those guys. It's the sunglass-wearing wrecking crew from last night's party at the heart of the city. If that's not bad enough, they are flanked by a half dozen cops. A helpful co-worker seems to be pointing directly at Neo's cubicle. I love how all of their heads swivel together. Oh, shit. Yes. The agents begin striding through the aisles. The music is tense. Morpheus says he can get Neo out of there, but he has to listen and follow directions carefully. The cubicle across from you is empty. Neo hesitates, questioning this voice on the other end of the phone. Oh, now. Neo launches himself into the empty cubicle. That tracks for me. Would you disobey a commanding Lawrence Fishburne? Neo clears the space with mere seconds to spare. Agent Smith turns down Neo's aisle. Neo is still on the phone with Morpheus, now on the floor of the empty cubicle. Stay here for just a moment. The agents arrive to find Neo's cubicle unoccupied. Silently, the agents look at each other, then separate. When I tell you, go to the end of the row, to the office at the end of the hall. Morpheus adds that Neo should stay as low as he can. Go now. Neo pokes his head out of the cubicle, looking right at the butt of one of the cops. He turns and duck walks the other way down the aisle until he reaches the empty office. Good. Now, outside, there's a scaffold. Oh, what now? Morpheus wants Neo to go out the window onto the ledge of this very high office. Then he's supposed to climb around to the window washer's scaffold and take himself up to the roof. Mr. Anderson has reached his limit for believing the guy on the phone. No way. No way. This is crazy. But he kind of has to. Morpheus tells him there are only two ways out of this building. One is that scaffold. The other is in their custody. He says Neo is taking a chance either way. I leave it to you. And then he hangs up on him. Hangs up. Way to get the poor guy almost free. Neo is trying to weigh his options while not freaking out. It's insane. He takes it far further than I would have. He actually goes out on the ledge. He can't make his way around a pillar. Then he drops the phone. 
This is where he finally decides he just can't do this. We cut to a reflection. Reflections are a recurring theme throughout the film. We usually see them inside the Matrix. This reflection is coming from a round motorcycle rearview mirror. We can see Neo being placed in the back of the black sedan by the agents. A quick pan from the agents to the person on the motorcycle reveals Trinity now in a leather jacket and sunglasses. Shit. She roars away. Cut to a bank of security monitors visible in each is a down-angle view of a table and chairs in an interview room. Neo is sitting in one of the chairs. The camera zooms in until we are inside one of the monitors. The door opens and our three buddies enter. Agent Smith slams a worn green folder down on the table and starts to flip through the contents. Smith says Mr. Anderson is leading two lives. In one of them, he is Thomas A. Anderson, software writer for a respectable company. You have a social security number, you pay your taxes, and you... Help your landlady carry out her garbage. Well, of course. He's such a nice boy. Okay, so that's one life. What's this other life you mentioned, Agent Smith? The other life has lived in computers, where you go by the hacker alias Neo and are guilty of virtually every computer crime we have a law for. Oh, my. Neo, you bad boy. This is our only solid indication that Neo is such a prolific hacker. The one time we've seen him at his computer so far, he was asleep. He was awed by Trinity's hacking exploits. This would indicate he's in the same game. We just didn't know how good a player he is. One of these lives has a future. Yeah, and what? The other one doesn't? Smith sounds like a high school guidance counselor. I wonder which life has a future, according to Smith. Probably not the one with Rob Zombie music and White Rabbit tats. Smith closes the file and says Neo is there because they need his help. Smith peels off his sunglasses. He thinks meeting Neo eye to eye might help. The whole thing is a little off-putting and creepy. Smith knows Neo has been approached by Morpheus. Whatever you think you know about this man is irrelevant. He is considered by many authorities to be the most dangerous man alive. I just love Hugo Weaving's choice of such a flat, disaffected delivery for Smith. Agent Smith decides he needs to get chummy with Neo. He says his colleagues think he's wasting his time interviewing Mr. Anderson. Smith has faith in Neo's desire to do the right thing. He says if Neo helps them, They'll wipe the slate clean. All that we're asking in return is your cooperation in bringing a known terrorist to justice. Sure, that's all it is. Neo seems amenable to Smith's offer, although he does have a counter. How about I give you the finger and you give me my phone call? Neo flips Smith a rather wicked bird. Check the walls behind Neo. Grids are an intentional design choice, especially whenever we're around agents. The grids have the feel of underlying structure and design. It's cute, isn't it, how Neo thinks he's dealing with real police? Oh, Mr. Anderson. With a disappointed tone, Smith retrieves his sunglasses. As he puts them back on, let's talk for a moment about the sunglasses worn by everyone throughout this movie. Trinity was just wearing a cool pair on the motorcycle. All of the sunglasses seen in the Matrix were custom designed by Richard Walker for Blind Design. And that's Blind, B-L-I-N-D-E. 
Walker beat out bigger designers like Ray-Ban and Chanel with his unique designs and a willingness to be available on the set throughout shooting. Every pair of sunglasses you see in the movie was custom-designed and handmade specifically for the character wearing them. Anderson says they can't scare him with this Gestapo crap. Again, he says... I know my rights. I want my phone call. He's very adamant about this phone call. Tell me, Mr. Anderson, what good is a phone call if you're unable to speak? The music changes. There's tension in the air. Smith doesn't move a muscle other than to raise an eyebrow. He may not have moved, but Neo is feeling something. It appears to be something distressing. We cut to a one-shot on Smith. When we cut back to Neo, something strange is happening with his mouth. His lips aren't visible. It looks like skin has grown down over them. He opens his mouth and strips of skin can be seen stretching over the opening. It's like the skin of his lower face has grown down over his mouth and completely closed it. Neo is suitably freaked. The disappearing mouth is a practical effect. Reeves said he had to wear a silicon prosthetic over his mouth for five hours on the day of this shoot. It's exactly what it appears to be, a full cover over his mouth. It's glued onto his face. This means he could not talk for the entire five hours. Keanu said he hadn't even considered the ramifications of not talking for that long. He wound up having to write out questions to the directors. Seeing him talk about it in an interview, you get the idea he was kind of enjoying it. It was a new way to explore physical acting without the possibility of talking. Keanu said, ultimately, it was a pretty fun day. A mouthless Neo backs into the corner of the room. His screams are muffled. Agents Brown and Jones pull Neo's shirt tail out of his pants, exposing some very toned abs, a side benefit from four months of intense martial arts training. They hold him down on his back on the table. Agent Smith pulls something out of his coat pocket. You're going to help us, Mr. Anderson, whether you want to or not. Smith takes a glass and wire diode-looking thing out of a pouch. He turns the end to activate it. What had appeared to be mechanical now looks more like some kind of a living thing, like a metallic scorpion. It's thrashing around as Smith is holding it by the tail. It's looking for purchase on something. Smith holds it over Neo's abdomen and drops it. The mechanical-looking bug zeroes in on Neo's navel. He starts to stick his tentacles in. We watch as this pseudo-scorpion mechanical bug thing forces its way into Mr. Anderson's abdomen going through his belly button. All the while, Neo's only silently screaming because his mouth has grown shut. Come on, what kind of a nightmare have we landed in here? Just as the scorpion disappears, Mr. Anderson snaps awake in his bed, in his apartment. So it was all a dream? It sure felt real. There's no way that was real. Grown over mouth, mechanical belly button bugs. How would he have even gotten back here to his apartment? Surely it was a dream. Neil runs his hand over his mouth. Lips have returned. He's able to breathe through his mouth. All seems back to normal in the face department. Neo lies back in bed, relieved. He has two seconds of downtime before... 
Cut to another one of those comic book panel shots. The phone is in the extreme foreground. Neo, out of focus and in the shadows, is in the corner of the shot. He gets up to answer it. This line is tapped, so I must be brief. They got to you first, but they've underestimated how important you are. If they knew what I know, you would probably be dead. I'm curious as to why he would be saying these things on a line he knows is tapped. This line from Morpheus is what you should use as the response to naysayers who ask why didn't the agents kill Neo when they had him in custody? Because they didn't know what they had. Mr. Anderson is just confused. He wants to know what's happening to him. You are the one, Neo. You see, you may have spent the last few years looking for me, but I've spent my entire life looking for you. This is nice to know, but it doesn't exactly explain what's happening to him. Morpheus asks if Neo still wants to meet. Well, of course Neo still wants to meet. Then go to the Adam Street Bridge. The Adam Street Bridge is a 120-foot truss bridge that crosses the Chicago River just east of Union Station in Chicago, Illinois. If you've ever taken a train out of Chicago, you've probably crossed the Adam Street Bridge getting to the station. In reality, the bridge where Neo meets is located on Campbell Street in Haymarket, an inner-city suburb of Sydney. It's night and pouring rain. How much more film noir can you get? Okay, how about this? A sleek black 1965 Lincoln Continental sedan with suicide doors slides up to the curb. Trinity, dressed in an outfit as sleek and black as the car, opens one of the back doors. Get in. Neo climbs in. The long shot of this scene is iconic. The sheet of water covering the opening of the tunnel, the outline of the car with the door wide. It's a poster. In the car, the character who will learn his name, Switch, pulls a pretty beefy pistol on Neo. It's a 40 caliber Browning high power. She's the only character in the movie to carry a Browning and the only one to dress all in white with bleached white hair. Switch is being played by Australian actress Belinda McClory. She was born in 1968 in Adelaide, South Australia. Belinda has 39 acting credits going back to 1990. Her most recent was in 2022. The character of Switch had an interesting developmental arc. Originally, Switch was supposed to be a trans character with a Matrix twist, living as a man in the real world while living as a woman inside the Matrix. If you think about it, the Switch character development somewhat mirrors the ongoing struggle the Wachowskis were having as closeted trans women in the 1990s. Ultimately, Warner Brothers requested the Wachowskis simplify the Switch character to a single person. According to the studio, this change was recommended not so much to tone down the transgender themes, but just to make it easier for audiences to understand. The suits figured this whole thing was confusing enough. Switch, in her final form, is intentionally portrayed as androgynous in order to maintain the spirit of the original character. What the hell is this? It's necessary, Neo. For our protection. From what? From you. They know the Mr. Anderson version of Neo, the one that exists in The Matrix, has been questioned by the agents. This means he's also probably been bugged by the agents. Take off your shirt. What? Switch doesn't like Neo's tone. She tells the driver to stop the car. We get an exterior shot of the pouring rain as the Lincoln screeches to a halt. 
Switch then says one of my absolute favorite lines in the whole movie, but I didn't realize it was my favorite line until after I'd seen it once. Listen to me, Copper Tom. If you get the reference, apologies for the next 45 seconds. Duracell is an American battery brand currently owned by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. The battery started as the P.R. Mallory Company in 1924. They were makers of what they called the Durable Cell Battery. The contraction of the name Duracell would become the brand name of the battery starting in 1964. By 1980, after a series of corporate mergers and handoffs, Kraft owned the Duracell brand. The Mallory name had been dropped completely. Kraft marketed the brand aggressively. The very recognizable design of the battery casing included a black barrel about three quarters of the way up the battery. The top quarter of the battery had a copper band around it. In the 1980s, the Kraft marketing machine declared Duracell the copper top battery. So keep your toys and electronic games running longer with Duracell. The copper top battery. No regular battery looks like it or lasts like it. Once we're told about the true state of humanity, we learn that all people have been enslaved for their ability to conduct electricity. Human beings are, in effect, acting as batteries, providing a worldwide power source for the machines of the AI. Neo, at this time, is still plugged into the Matrix, so he's still a battery. We don't have time for 20 questions. Right now, there's only one rule. Highway or the highway. Switch is very threatening. Neo gives Trinity a long look, then decides it's not worth it. He grabs the door handle. He pushes open the very cool suicide door. Trinity grabs his sleeve. Please, Neo. You have to trust me. He pauses, then asks why. She gets all mystical on him here. Because you have been down there, Neo. You know that road. You know exactly where it ends. We cut to a view down a road. It's a city street with a construction tunnel running down the left side. There's another reflection here. The Lincoln's driver's side rearview mirror is to the right of the frame. Trinity is practically whispering. She says... She knows that's not where he wants to be. Her mystical BS seems to have worked. Neil pulls the door closed and the Lincoln continues on through the rain-soaked streets of any major city USA. APOC lights. Our driver, he of the severe sideburns and man bun, is APOC. APOC is being played by New Zealand actor Julianne Arahanga. APOC is a freed human. Only freed humans, those who at one time were wired into the Matrix, can go into and out of the Matrix. It's kind of like being an Apple product. You need the right jack in order to connect. A natural human, one born outside of the Matrix, is not fitted with the jack at the base of the neck, which allows connection to the Matrix. This one jack is kind of like a USB port for the brain. It short-circuits the neural pathways for all of the natural senses and replaces those signals with computer-generated senses. A close-up shows Apoc's hand flipping on the dome lights of the Lincoln. In the back seat, Trinity grabs an enormous and menacing-looking gizmo from the floorboards. She tells Neo again, lie back and lift up your shirt. What is that thing? The gizmo Trinity has now placed over Neo's bare abdomen needs power. Apoc plugs it into the car lighter. A clear glass tube, part of the Trinity gizmo, has been placed over Neo's stomach, centered on his navel. 
It's outfitted with a bright light so you can clearly see everything happening in the tube. Trinity is looking at a small screen that seems to be working a bit like an ultrasound. We can see a pretty good representation of the things Smith dropped through Neo's navel there on the screen. The worm starts moving. You're going to lose it. Trinity is confident she can get it. There's a spark of current across Neo's belly. Trinity's gizmo is trying to short-circuit Neo's bug. As soon as the bug is disabled, it is vacuumed up through Neo's navel into the clear tube and on into a collection chamber. The bloody and disgusting chunk of living electronics squirms around inside the tube. Jesus Christ, that thing's real! He'd convinced himself the weird meeting with the agents had all been a dream. Trinity empties the collection tube out the window of the Lincoln. We get a close-up of the device. After it hits the wet pavement, it's back to looking more like what Smith took out of his pocket. The buzzing noise and red light inside the device fades. We can see steam coming off it. It's a good thing Neo's debugged because they're here. The Lincoln pulls up to an enormous brick building. There are some great down-angle shots looking at the car from four or five stories up. The rain continues and it is torrential. We cut to inside the brick building. It is obviously old and abandoned, but at one time it was a very elegant space. Okay, refiners, let's pause for a second right here. Trinity and Neo are outside the door leading to Morpheus. Neo is about to meet Morpheus, make his pill selection, get freed from the Matrix, find out about the Matrix. He's got a lot on his plate here in the next few scenes. This seems like the perfect spot for us to pick up next time when Severed Origins continues to break down the Matrix. If you haven't yet watched but want to, you can stream the Matrix on Max or it's available to rent from all of the usual suspects. For now, Refiners, the old analog clock on the wall says it's time to close the file and shut down your workstation. Never let it be said that Alan S. would be one to intrude on your Audi life. As for a season two of Severance, still no word. The WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes both still continue. Studios have laid off staff. Writers have sold their homes. It's getting rough out there. Be watching the Severed Facebook page for the latest strike updates. Until an agreement can be reached, I'll try to keep our spirits up down here on the Severed floor with more of these origin stories. Don't worry about the lights. I'll take care of them. For now, you need to exit via the elevator. And remember, please stagger your exits. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Severed is written, produced, and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content, or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, Apple TV+, or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts. 